morning, everyone. Good to see you all. We're glad to have Pastor Bob and his wife back. They were at a wedding down in Florida, and they flew in last night. And um, when did they get in? Two in the morning? Yeah, so they're our, they're our heroes. So if you see Bob like this, he's just praying for us. He's praying for us. If you have your Bible today, I want to ask if you would turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to start looking at the book of Malachi. By the way, it's good to see Micah Van Horn here. Amen. Praise the Lord. It's a wonder of God's grace. Amen. Praise Jesus. So, uh, if you're visiting with us, we have plenty of extra Bibles. And basically, we study verse by verse through the Bible. Now, we've been going through the book of Genesis. We are currently in chapter 26. And Bob and I, as we plan out the summer decided that since I did a series a few years ago on the life of Jacob, that we would take a break from Genesis at this point. We're going to move over for the next six weeks, and we're going to do a series on the book of Malachi, this minor prophet, and then we'll move into the book of Romans in the fall. But I'm looking forward to this study. We've been talking about it, and it's, it's really exciting. It's a great challenge. As you can see, we're calling it Empty Religion or Vibrant Faith. But I want us to pray, and then we're going to talk about this. It's, it's really fun, and I want to encourage you to study Malachi along with us, to be reading it. I did say this in the first service. If you don't have a study Bible, I really want to encourage you to get one. Pastor John has been providing them in the back. We sell them on the book cart. We don't make money off of them. But study Bibles are really helpful because they give you background. It's kind of like, imagine buying a book in a bookstore, and it's just got a white cover. That's it. No table of contents, no description. You would have no clue. You would go, is this a novel? Is this a history book? Um, who wrote it? How, what's, what are the chapters about? So study Bibles kind of give you the background to tell you, okay, this is what this book is about. They don't replace the Bible. They just help you to get some context as you're reading it so that one of the things you know we really are encouraging our people is to learn to read the Bible for yourself. The Bible really is a powerful, wonderful word from God. And it's our desire that people don't just come and go, you have to tell me what it says, but that you're learning how to read it for yourself. So one of the things the Bible teaches us to do is that when we read the Bible, we pray that God will help us to understand it. The Bible's different from other books in that the Scripture says it's alive and powerful. There's a spiritual sense to the Bible, and God can reveal or conceal things from you depending on, on your heart attitude. So we pray and we ask God to speak to us through the Bible. So let's pray. Lord, as we begin a study of the book of Malachi, we want to open our hearts to listen and receive what you want to say. We thank you that unlike any book, the word of God is alive. And the spirit of God makes it come alive to us and, and speaks to us. And sometimes the Bible convicts us and makes us feel guilty because you're pointing us to a place of repentance and forgiveness. Sometimes it comforts us, sometimes it warns us, sometimes it encourages us, it feeds our souls. And you said that man shall not live by bread alone. But we also know, Lord, that reading the Bible is not enough. Because scripture says if we hear the word of God but we don't do what it says, we're deceiving ourselves. So I want to ask for our people and for myself that your Holy Spirit as we go through the book of Malachi, that it will be relevant and helpful, and that we will feel as though God was speaking to us personally 
and encouraging and instructing us and guiding us. This is how we find your will in your word. So, Lord, demonstrate your power. Though the world may say the Bible's a dopey, old-fashioned book that we don't have to pay attention to, may you show that to be so far from the truth. And we, we give you all the glory, and we're excited about what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways to begin to understand the Bible is to see how the books of the Bible fit in their context. So most of you know that the Old Testament has 39 books, and there's a little table of contents. But those 39 books are not in chronological order. So if you read the book of Job, which is kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, that's probably written way earlier than it is in the Bible. So one of the ways to kind of think your way through the Bible is to understand that a portion of the Bible is the historical books telling the story of the Old Testament. Then you've got poetic books like Psalms and Proverbs, and etc. And then you've got the prophets that are sort of addressing issues. So I want to just rehearse just briefly, because if I'm reading the book of Malachi, I have to know where he fits into the Bible story. So let me start by, by reminding you, what is the story of the Bible? Some people say, oh, it's God's love letter. And as warm as that is, it's, it's a, little, a little brief. The, the, the story of the Bible is a message about God and about his creation, how he created us, so it explains why we're here. But it also is a story of the fall of mankind, that, that this world is messed up because of Adam and Eve and Satan's rebellion against God. So the fall brought about God's curse. And so here we are thousands of years after creation, and we're sinners with a corrupt disposition under the curse of God's condemnation. Now, a lot of people... Don't believe that, but that's the message of the Bible. But God is not a God who hates people, who wants to destroy people. So we see that after the fall, and even before the fall, God promised that he would bring redemption, that he would offer a way to be saved and rescued from this curse. And so a major, perhaps the most central theme of the Bible is God's program of redemption. All along, he planned to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross so that Christ could be punished instead of us and pay for our sins and rise again. And he's the focal point of the Bible. In fact, Jesus said, if you search the scriptures, you'll find that they testify about me. So anyone who says, oh, I already read the Bible, if they don't focus on Christ, they missed it. So Christ came and he offered this redemptive sacrifice, and then he told his disciples, go and spread this message to all the nations, because I'm going back to my Father and I'm coming again. So we're waiting for the final part of the Bible is about God's restoration when Jesus returns to this earth. Now, again, that's a worldview that you can choose to believe or not believe. You can believe what the world says, that you just evolved and you're hearing some meaningless malaise, or that you have purpose. You were created by God, but that you were rebellious. Christ died and rose again so that you could find forgiveness and eternal life and become a Christ follower as we wait for his return. So when you're reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament was a message of anticipation. It was a message of preparation, getting us ready for the coming of Christ. And real quickly, I just want to rehearse six movements. As you're thinking through the Old Testament, it's really not that complex. Think of it this way. The first movement of God's plan of redemption was when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Remember we saw on the map, that's up in Mesopotamia, kind of modern-day Babylon. And he called him out of Ur to come down into what we call the Promised Land. 
And that's the first portion of the story of the Old Testament. God calls Moses or Abraham to create this new nation, this nation to whom Christ would come. Abraham comes down and he's in the land. And God says to him, but you can't stay here. So he has a son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And God says, but you're going to have to go down to Egypt. And so after being in the land for three generations, they then go down to Egypt under Joseph's leadership. And while they're in Egypt, God causes this thing to blow up in in, in an in, in, in indescribable way. They, they multiplied from 70 people to a million people in a matter of 400 years. So all of a sudden, you've got Egypt overflowing with Jews. There's, a, there's over a million of them. And in the meantime, the Egyptians are, are getting fearful and hateful toward the Jews. They're punishing and persecuting and, and trying to suppress them. And the Jews are crying out, Oh, God of Abraham, rescue us and take us back to our land. And that's where Moses comes in. God intentionally raises up Moses to be the deliverer. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, and now they're going to go back into the promised land, which really should have taken maybe six months at most to lead a million people. But instead, remember, it took 40 years because they, they were rebellious and they had to wander. So they came from Ur into the promised land, down to Egypt. Now they came out of Egypt, and Moses leads them right back to the western shores of the Jordan River. They're looking across into the promised land, waiting this million people to go in. And God tells Moses, you're not going to be able to go in because of your disobedience, but Joshua's going to lead them in. And so under Joshua's leadership, remember God parted the Jordan River, and they come back into the land. And then Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And, and so they began systematically to take this land from the wicked Canaanites until they were settled into 12 tribes. And so it looked great. God is their leader. They now have God's law through Moses, and all is well. But the problem was, God said all along, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a light to the nations, and Messiah is going to come through you. But if you disobey me, you're going to get the boot. You're going to get evicted from the land, and I'm going to show the world that my name will be great among the nations. Well, you remember that they asked God, give us a king. And so God said, okay, you want a king? He gave them Saul. And remember when we went through 1 Samuel, Saul didn't do so well. Then he gave them King David, a man after God's own heart, a picture of the Lord Jesus. But David's son Solomon, with all of his wisdom, began to decline at the end of his life, and his heart turned away from the Lord. And then his son Rehoboam went even further away, and under his leadership, the nation of Israel split. So they're in the land, but now they had a civil war, much like we did, only a different outcome. Because in our civil war, we stayed united, the United States. They ended up having the divided states of the promised land, northern Israel, southern Judah. For the rest of the Old Testament story, those two people groups consistently had times of up and down, obedience and disobedience, but for the most part, disobedience. And so the Old Testament winds down with God saying, listen, you haven't listened to me over and over again when I've appealed to you to obey. So unfortunately, the ump threw them out. And so God said, you're going to have to go away to Babylon. And so this is the fifth movement. And it's really not that complicated. They started near Babylon, into Israel, down to Egypt, back up to the edge, into the land, 
And because of disobedience, boop, now they're back where they started. But God had said to them, I'm only going to leave you there for 70 years. And the prophet Jeremiah predicted that after 70 years, that God would lead them back out of his exile, back into the land. So as the Old Testament story winds down, and they're anticipating the coming of Christ, you'll think of names like Ezra. Remember, God used Ezra to come back into the land out of Persia at this time and to help them to rebuild the temple. Because God already said, this is how I want you to worship me, through a temple and through my prescribed sacrifices. You see, the world says something like this. Hey, you know what? Whatever your religion, they're all just different trains going to the same place. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, no one comes to the Father but through Christ. And so Jesus has prescribed the way to worship him. It's not a free-for-all where we go, I like to think of my God as this. And so what had happened is Ezra came back and, and rebuilt the temple, and they, they kind of they struggled with that. And so God raised up Zechariah and Haggai to say, listen, finish the temple. So they finished it. And then Nehemiah came back, and they built a wall around the city. And things were starting to develop. There was some hope. Now, it was nothing like the former temple, but what happened is, and this is what's so sad, is what started with a vibrant faith, these people coming back, like church planning, they built the church, they had the temple, they began to offer sacrifices to God, but gradually their vibrant faith spiraled into an empty religion, and that's where God raised up Malachi to correct them. There, it was so sad, the priests, who were the spiritual leaders, had become lukewarm, so that they were bored, and their sacrifices were not appropriate. The people began to question God's love. Does he really love us? If he loves us, why are we going through all this problem? And it's interesting, as you think about the sins that they were struggling with, it's the same sins we struggle with. They were struggling with relativism. Is there really such a thing as good and evil? In chapter 2, verse 17, God says, you say everyone who does evil is good, and where is God's justice? There was a family breakdown, social breakdown. Whenever people turn away from God, you watch how that breaks down in the family. Marriages begin to spin out of control, and then it affects the children. So in the book of Malachi, Malachi is exhorting them, hey, you made a covenant with your wives. I hate divorce. Why are, now, it's not that there aren't grounds for divorce in the Bible, but they were divorcing indiscriminately. And what was happening is this was causing a tremendous strain between parents and children because God's ideal that Christianity is caught, not just taught. And so the most natural way that Christianity is passed on is from the fathers to the children. But once people fall away from God and their marriages are breaking up, it's going to be natural that their hearts are going to turn away from their children. And we try to say, oh, kids are resilient. But at the end of Malachi, Malachi says, I'll send my messenger. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. And so they've got this family breakdown. They had a lack of reverence and gratitude. They, they, they weren't treating God with respect. They were failing to exalt God's name. God had said, listen, you, my little nation here, you're going to be a light to the other nations. Everyone's going to look at you, and they're going to respect me, and they're going to go, wow, the God of Jehovah the God of the Jews is the great God. But instead, they were making him look bad. They were making him look 
despised and disgraceful. And so Malachi enters in, and he brings this message from the Lord, not because God's mad at them, but because God is awakening them and saying, I don't want empty religion. And I couldn't help but think of American culture where there's still an awful lot of people who go to church and we go through the motions and we sing our songs and we put our money in the plate. But then we go out and we live much like the people in Malachi's day. So I'll tell you something. This is very convicting. And I'm not sitting up here, holy man, with my little halo going, you sinners need to hear this. I, I said to someone, I said, studying this, the sword of the spirit was slashing me up. Every time I take a drink, it was all leaking out because it was very convicting. And I think that we're going to find ourselves going, wow, this is so relevant to the culture in which we live. So we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning, and Malachi is going to develop his message in a very simple way. He's going to ask questions, and then the people are going to respond with questions, kind of dialogical, maybe kind of like Socrates. Remember, he used to ask questions. But sometimes the questions are sarcastic. And sometimes they're rhetorical, like, duh, the answer is pretty obvious. So let's start in verse 1. Malachi says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now just a couple thoughts here. First of all, the name Malachi in Hebrew means my messenger. But there's some debate as to that's, whether that's really even a name. In fact, the Septuagint, some of you may have heard of what they call the LXX, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it says the word of the Lord through his messenger. So some have suggested that there was no guy named Malachi, that the idea was it doesn't matter who preached this message, it was God's messenger. And they partly based that off chapter 3 where God says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And we know that that doesn't mean Malachi there, a personal name, but... I think most conservative scholars would agree that Malachi was a, a personal name and that this was not somebody that God's saying, now keep it in anonymity. But secondly, I want you to notice what he calls his message, an oracle, a word of the Lord. Now, the word oracle literally means a burden, okay? Now, when you think about that, you go, why would God call his, his word a burden? Well, sometimes it's because the message is so strong and weighty. But not always. But frequently when God gives an oracle, there's, there's a depth to it. There's a heaviness, a seriousness to it. And certainly that's the case here. Now, I, I want to note something here. This is so important. If you don't attend this church, whatever church you choose to attend, be sure you're in a church where they are delivering to you the word of the Lord. Whether it's burdensome, whether it's troubling, whether you don't like it, whether it's politically correct, that's what you want to hear. That's what God's people are supposed to do. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of churches in America. You can build a big church, but they don't give the whole counsel of God. In fact, Paul warned against this. He said in, in 2 Timothy, in the last days... Men will turn away from the truth. They want their ears tickled. They don't want to be reproved with sound doctrine. And I've had people who have left this church. I know of They say, I don't like what Pastor Tom said. And I'll often say, hey, listen, don't shoot the messenger. If you don't like how I said it, maybe I was, you felt mean or insensitive, we can talk about that. But if God said it, 
it's frankly not up for discussion. Either we receive the word of God, the oracle of the Lord, or we reject his word. And so it's so important that we come back to bringing God's message. And let's see what God's message is. Well, in chapter 1, we're going to look at two questions. The first question they had was, does God really love us? I don't really sense that God loves us. And you're going, man, that's, that's a relevant question. We struggle with that. So let's look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Wow. Parents have seen this. I love you, son, but I'm going to have to correct you. I remember doing this with my son once, and it was the truth. I'm going to have to discipline you right now. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I had tears in my eyes. Being a wise little man, he says, well, if it's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt me, why not let's not just do it? I said, good thinking. Final answer? So, but there are times, I mean, I think this is a legitimate question. God, you tell me you love me, but then they ask, how have you loved us? And we say, well, duh, God loves everybody. God is love. Go out and tell the world, God is love. Vacation Bible school, come on. But, but the thing is, too, so, so you're, in the, you're, you're in the veteran's hospital, and here's a man who's, who's lost both legs in the war. A man who begins to tell you his story that while he was overseas, his wife had an affair and left him. A man who lost his son in a car accident. A man who just found out that he has cancer. And you say, hey, pal, God loves you. And he says, how has he loved me? And so there are a lot of hurting people in this world, even in the churches in America, who are going, you're telling me God loves me, but my circumstances certainly aren't showing that. And yet, it's really interesting how God answers here, because... I'm not sure I would answer this way, but this is the beauty of letting God's voice and heart speak to us. Look at how he answers. How have you loved us? So he he asks them this question. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and I appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So here I would, here's how he answers. You want to know how I love you? We're going to go back in history to the formation of this nation. And this is really cool because it's very relevant because we just went through this story in Genesis. God says, think back to the twins, Jacob and Esau. Before either one of them was born, I made a choice. The older will serve the younger. I chose Jacob. And so you know how God's answering this question, how do you love me? He says, here's a display of my love for you. I sovereignly chose you to be my people. Now, there's a lot of Christians that have not yet grasped that. That to be chosen by God is a tremendous privilege, one that ought to cause us to respond with such gratitude. Oh, God, why would you love and choose me? So I tried to think of an analogy. It's kind of like, imagine we hear stories of orphanages, say, in, in difficult countries, maybe an orphanage in Russia where, where maybe most of those kids will never get adopted. But some family comes in and, 
and for reasons known only to God, because sometimes they don't choose the cutest kid. They might choose a sick child. They might, they might choose a child that you go, why would you choose them? But in their own love, they just reach out and they choose one of those children. And if that child gets raised in a fairly stable home, it's pretty natural for them to have some sense of a, appreciation. Wow, I am so overwhelmed that my parents chose me. And so what we learn here is that God wants us to think about election as a demonstration of his love for you. This is taught in the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were enemies of God. We were dead in our sins. We were indulging the lust of our flesh. We were children who deserved his wrath. But then he says this, but God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. Why me? Why are we here today? Why do we have an interest in Christ? It's because he chose you. Charles Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Why am I interested in Christ? Because before the foundation of the world, God chose me to bring me to himself and to make me his child. Now, the difficulty is how he words this. Instead of just saying, I chose Jacob, and I didn't choose Esau. He says, I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. And people struggle with that. They're like, what kind of a God would hate people? One of the things I want to remind you is that words have to be taken in their context. So I don't think God means here that he has this hatred for Jacob. He's using a contrast between one that he chose to select and one that he chose to pass over and reject. And a similar analogy would be when Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you don't hate your father and mother. Now, I hope no one the first time they read that went home and said, Mom and Dad, I need to tell you something. I hate you. And they're going, what? Yeah, Jesus said, if I'm going to follow him, I've got to hate you. Well, we look at the context, and, and what's Jesus really saying there? He's really saying this. He's saying, you need to choose me over your family. And that's a very relevant issue because there's a lot of people who end up in hell because they're more afraid of what their religious family members will think about them. Well, we've been staunch blah, blah, blah religion for this long. If I tell my family I'm leaving the church and going to a Bible preaching church, they'll disown me. And Jesus goes, precisely. I did not come to bring peace on the earth but a sword, and sometimes it'll divide a father and mother. And so if there's any one of your loved ones that's keeping you from following Christ, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. So in essence, he's saying, you need to choose me over your loved ones if you want to follow me, because I love you. In the same way, God's saying, I chose Jacob. I chose to love him. And the hatred here is not this despite for Esau as a person, but he's chosen to pass over him. But this is what the Bible teaches, that there will be a small band of people that will enter the kingdom of God. The Bible says, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many are those that find it. But notice how God continues. He goes, now, as you think about how I chose you, think about what's going to happen to Edom. Because Edom, the, 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 the descendants of Esau, became the enemies of God. And so, in essence... The Edomites become a picture of really all unbelievers. The Bible says all unbelievers are enemies of God. 
And God has pronounced that he will pour out his indignation and his judgment on people who reject him. And it's their fault. They are in rebellion against God. And so look what he says about the Edomites. He goes, you, you, you wonder how I love you? I chose you. Look what he says about the Edomites in verse 3. I've made his mountain a desolation. I've appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. You see, God had cursed the Edomites because of their wickedness, because of their hostility to his people. And he pronounced that the Edomites, and you can do historical research about where Edom was at the time and the way that God had had brought destruction to them. But people who are in rebellion against God don't always get it. How many times will a man kick a door down when the Lord offers him the key? And so even though God had told the Edomites, I will tear you down and you will not be rebuilt. Look at verse 4. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and we will build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people to whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. And you go, wait, so so what is God saying here? He's saying this, he's saying rebellious people will continue in their rebellion. Romans chapter 1 says, God gives men over to their sins. But in their rebellion, people get this idea that you can fight against God and you can really win. And you can rage against him and you can say, I'm not submitting to him. Psalm 2 is all about that. It says, why do the Gentiles imagine a vain thing? Why do they rage against God and say, we will not have his Messiah rule over us? But every day, people in America do the same thing. I don't have to follow your Jesus Christ. Who do you think you are, him telling he's the only way? And you see, when God talks about being indignant against people, we go, yeah, I'll bet God really hates murderers. And he's really mad at, at people who use drugs and people who abuse people. And while that's true, God is indignant with every single soul on planet Earth who's not a repentant believer. John chapter 3, verse 36 says this. Those who believe in Christ, if you come with a broken heart and you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you're not condemned. But those who will not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on them. Remember those hunting shows? Those of you that are animal rights, I'm not trying to make light of this, but on hunting shows, they'll often show the crosshair of the hunter's scope right before the trigger's pulled. And you think, man, that animal has no idea what's coming. But what the Bible teaches is that this is true of people all over the world and some that are even sitting in this congregation, that you may think you and the old man upstairs are cool, but you're not cool. If you're not saved, the wrath of God is abiding on you. And yet, there's mercy at the cross. You flee to Christ. You repent and believe in him. In essence, you go, I don't want to get shot by God's wrath for my sins. So I look to Christ, who already said, God, shoot me. Jesus bore our sins in his body that he might pay the wrath of God and say, it's finished. But when it says God is indignant forever, we need to understand, and we need to speak back against people who say this, my God would never put anyone in hell. 
I go, listen, while I, while I respect and want to be sensitive to your feelings, then your God is a make-believe God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy. The God of the Bible is just. The Bible says his eyes are too pure to look on sin. He's angry with the wicked every day. He loves people, but he hates sin. And it's interesting because the same people who say that, they really want to have it both ways. Because while they don't want a holy God to punish people, when something bad happens to them and they go to court, they want a just judge who's going to give them what they deserve. If someone robbed my mother and beat her, I don't want to go to court and have the judge get up and say, I'm a loving judge. I don't really punish people. So come on, don't do that again. Why can't we be friends? The whole society would break down if there wasn't justice. But here's a holy God who looks down on his creation, who by, by authority deserves worship and obedience, and people are just living for themselves, ignoring God. And one day, they're going to experience his eternal indignation. So if you ask yourself, how do I know God loves me? If you're a believer, there it is. He chose you. If you have an interest in Christ, it's not because you and I are smarter than the average bear. It's when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. He brought you to himself. And we all have a different story. Some of you, you went to Billy Graham. Some of you got saved in a service here. You real bright ones. Back when you were five years old. Remember when you were reading Francis Schaeffer, Escape from Reason, and the plausible arguments of the resurrection convinced you that you should follow Christ. It's all about God's grace. But the Bible tells us that we're chosen to comfort us, not to confuse us, not to confound us, to help you to say, here's how much I love you, that I predestined you, I've called you, you're safe and secure, and you can rest that I began a good work in you, and I will complete it. Someone asked me this morning, but what if I want to be saved, and I'm not elect? And I have a simple answer for that. If you want to be saved, you are elect, because you wouldn't want to be saved apart from the drawing of God in your heart. The Bible says unbelievers are dead in their sins, and they don't seek after God. So if in any way you feel this awakening, like, I want to believe in Christ, God's not saying to you, sorry, you're not chosen. Jesus said, everyone who comes to me, I won't cast them out. So come while you can. And by the way, a side note, this person asks, but what about my loved ones? Should I not pray for them? Because I don't know whether they're elect. Yeah, the answer to that is, Absolutely pray as though it fully depended on you. First Timothy 2 says we should pray for all men, for God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he calls our children and others to himself through prayer, not apart from prayer. But God says, you want to know if I love you? I chose you. And by the way, this was written before the coming of Christ. Now God takes it a step further. He says, you want to know if I love you? Romans chapter 5 says, while we were enemies of God, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we have this new paradigm. Whenever I feel like God doesn't love me, I don't go, he must not love me because I have cancer. I go, look at Calvary. See from his head and his hands and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingling down. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. 
So we take this great comfort. God loves us because he chose us and Jesus died for us. Please say amen to that. Otherwise, this next passage is going to whack you. All right, good. Okay, now let's look at the next question. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despised my name. But you say, how have we despised thy name? So one of the things I want you to see as we're reading through this book is God will go back and forth. Sometimes he'll speak to the leaders, right? But when he's speaking to the leaders, don't go, oh, that this doesn't pertain to me. And when he's speaking to the people, if you're a leader here, don't go, oh, this doesn't pertain to me. But as are the leaders in spiritual congregations, usually that's where the people are. And so God's isolating the priests. But this is true of all of us. And he appeals to human relationships. He goes, think about it. He goes, a son is supposed to honor his father. Now, unfortunately, in American culture, we are really messed up even in this regard. I remember going over to my daughter's friend's house when she was five years old, and the little girl says, hey, Jim, get me some tea. And I said to Jim, did she just call you Jim? He goes, oh, yeah, we let our kids call us by the first name. And while that's not evil or wicked, it's sort of a, a picture of our society. There is such dishonor towards parents, and it's just totally acceptable in American culture. Kids, grandmother's here. Come down and greet her. I'm playing Nintendo. Tell Granny to carry her own bag in. You want to, and you've heard me say this many times, just speak to people from Africa. They're shocked when they see the dishonor with which American children treat their parents. And we go, well, you don't, you don't understand. Times are different. And I go, no, I understand. We're a mess. I've asked many of them. They say, oh, when I correct my children, they kneel down. I say, have you ever heard kids dishonor their parents? I've never heard somebody do that. And then we say, yeah, I know, because they're animals. They beat their kid. They're stinking animals. Their kids are probably terrified and hate them. And I go, yeah, ask them. Ask their kids. They honor. They value. They love. They beg to, to have their parents Come and live with them. And so it's sort of hard to use this analogy because in our culture, a lot of kids don't honor their parents. But in, in the Bible, this is one of God's Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And as parents, we're called to expect that and give consequences if our children don't. We can't control them. But if you just look the other way and go, ah, it's too much work. But God's simply appealing. He said in the book of Exodus, Israel is my son. And God goes, okay, people of God, you're my sons. Don't I deserve honor and respect? Israel is my servant. Don't I deserve honor and respect? And God says, you despised my name. Now, again, this is the thing about sin. It's so scary. It's deceiving. We can have a very different view of ourselves than God does. And the only way I can get a proper view of how God views me is to keep my nose in this book. In the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea said to Jesus, we're rich and we need nothing. And Jesus goes, here's my diagnosis. You're poor and miserable, wretched, blind, and naked. So instead of going, you're right, God, I've dishonored you, they go, how have, what are you talking about? You're talking to me. I haven't despised you. And God goes, okay, let me give you some examples, verse 8. Or verse 7. 
You say the table of the Lord is to be despised. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? When God told them to offer sacrifices, he said, you go out to your flock and you pick a unblemished male lamb. You pick the best, the purest. Because in God's mind, that lamb would symbolize Christ, the ultimate lamb of God. So he clearly said, don't bring me a sick animal. Don't bring me three-legged, one-eyed Larry. He says, you bring me the best. But God goes, look at what you're offering me. Right? It would be like having a very honored guest over and serving a fish. And they go, does that fish have three eyes? And you go, yeah, I got it from um, Chernobyl. They were having a sale on fish. I know. Or it might have a little mercury in it. I go, a little mercury? I could take my temperature with it. You wouldn't serve that to your guests. And so what God's really saying here is, you're giving me your junk. You're giving me leftovers. I should get the first and the best choices. And this is convicting. People who save their tea bags after they use them, we dry them and we send them to our missionaries. Oh, the sacrifices. Or how about this one? This couch, Fifi's peed on it so many times, let's get rid of it. No, you know what? Let's give it to the church. The youth group can use it, right? And God's going, really? And when it's time to give to God and we go, well, God, you got to understand, by the time I paid my bills and we went out to eat and we got, I think, you know, a couple tired dollars from you, and God's going, is that honoring me? Is that respecting me? And then he says something, wow. He says in verse 9, now you'll entreat God's favor that he'll be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive you kindly? So you pray and you want me to bless you and you're treating me like that? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Did he just say that? Did he just say to his own people, put a padlock and a chain on the gates of the church if you're going to come and play games, if you're going to sit on your butt for an hour and think, God must be really happy because I sung a song to him, but the rest of the week, I disregard him. I don't read my Bible. I don't worship. I'm not grateful. I'm complaining and self-indulgent. And I'm going, God, you're getting me. And he goes, because I love you. Verse 11, he says, From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. He says it again, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Think about what he's saying here. You're my chosen nation. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. People are supposed to be looking at your lives and going, wow, the God of Israel is a true God. I want what they have. We should worship him the way they do. But instead he goes, you're treating me like junk. And he says, one day my name's going to be great among all the nations. See, you're not going to be the select and only nation. And here as we spin forward, I couldn't help but think right now, all over planet Earth, people from almost every tribe and tongue and people and nation are coming to worship Christ. 
People are walking miles through the jungle, and they're singing in their own languages, and they've given up everything, and they're willing to die for their faith. And here we come to church, and we stand there, and we, oh, God, I love you, and you know what? Let's keep this thing going. What time's the Eagles game? And I'm going, God, wow. Even our attitude, the psalmist said, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. How often do we praise the Lord? Or do we complain? Do we just go around and we argue and, and, we're, and we're disinterested in spiritual things? And we go right along with the culture accumulating. God says in verse 12, you're profaning my name. You say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, the fruit is to be despised. And you say how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? I read a boy. Man, this quote was convicting. He says, never been to church but there's some place that you'd rather be. Remember Billy Graham or Billy Joel? John at the bar is a friend of mine. You give me my drinks for free. He's quick with a smoke, but he'll light up, or quick with a joke, light up your smoke. There's some place he'd rather be. And this is what the, this is what the people of God, the priests are doing. Oh yeah, you got to offer God a sacrifice. And we sit in church, but in our heart we're at the beach or we're at the softball field and we're going, let's get this over with so we can go back to our fun. And I'm going, God, that sounds like me at times. And he goes, yeah. This isn't just them. And then he closes with the ultimate assault, and that's the offense of hypocrisy. He says, cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock, and he vows it. So in public he says, I'm going to give my best lamb to Jesus. I love you, Lord. But then when it comes time to live it out and to offer that sacrifice, it's the bait and switch. He grabs a blemished animal, and he hands it to him. You know, I couldn't think of thinking of, we talked about giving recently. We talked about the giving ladder, and and people are like, I'm going to pledge this much to God, and and we don't know what you pledge, right? But now that things are sort of settling down, where are you with what you're giving to God? You're like, we're going to get around to start giving regularly, and God's going, really? What's the delay here? And then God closes with sort of the summary. He goes, I'm a great king. I'm going to be feared among the nations. Are you living empty religion or vibrant faith? Jesus, the king, is coming. So I'd like you to close with me in prayer as we consider, wow. A couple things here. If indeed you're going, man, Pastor Tom, my wife needed to hear that. Okay, that's a problem. If indeed you're going, let them have it, Pastor Tom. These sinners around me really need to hear it. Then you still have a problem. But I'll be the first one to say, I find this a real challenge, especially living in America. But we can respond to it. Because ultimately, God's not up there saying, I don't like you. He's saying, I love you. So this is my call. So, so let's pray and respond. I'm just going to give you an opportunity as we close, to respond by asking you some questions to pray for, as I've thought through in my own life. Father, as we come to you, we thank you that you love us just as we are, but too much to leave us that way. You want us to become 
growing disciples, falling in love with Jesus. Lord, you always tell us to love you because you first loved us. So that's where we'll start. Thank you so much for loving us enough that Jesus would die. And Lord, this passage, as I studied it, made me feel pretty bad. But that's a good thing because then Jesus comes along to comfort me, a broken and contrite heart you won't despise. So if you haven't been giving your best to God, would you take a moment and ask his forgiveness? If your lifestyle isn't enhancing his reputation, you speak evil, you're angry, you're treating your spouse or your kids or your co-workers unchristian, ask his forgiveness. doubted God's love or taking your eyes off the cross. Repent and return to your first love. If you're lukewarm, you're bored with the Bible, bored with God, ask for him to change your heart. Father, I thank you for this church, and I do believe that there's a vibrant, growing faith community here. And Lord, we, we take this oracle from you, and we thank you so much, and we pray that you would corporately forgive us for being like Malachi's people at times. And I pray that this week, we will exalt your name, that we will live in a loving, humble, Christ-like way so that your reputation is advanced. Thank you that it is your desire that the gospel goes out to all the nations. May we live and give and pray and seek that our children follow you, our neighbors, and our, our brothers and sisters. We love them and live community with them that your name might be great. Help us to give you our best. And Lord, I'll be the first one to say, forgive me for the times that I haven't done that. We rest in Christ. We claim the promise if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. Thank you that we can start fresh this morning. And I pray that we will make disciples who make disciples. And if there's anyone here who's not saved, who doesn't want to experience your wrath, come to Jesus and just ask his forgiveness. And then let us know or let someone that you came know so we can follow up and help you to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Be sure to read ahead. Chapter 2, Pastor Bob's going to be speaking from the first nine verses on next Sunday. God bless.